Uh, Turn in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 14. Numbers chapter 14. It's been a real joy for me to be able to work through the Old Testament and to look at some of these stories. There's a lot I've learned. Hopefully you've learned some things as well. Uh, There is power in a story, especially if that story is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Uh, But uh, we rejoice in what we've learned, what we've discovered about human sinfulness and man's greatness, or I'm sorry, God's greatness and goodness to us. So we've gone through this story, uh, starting in Numbers 11, we've gone the whole way through Numbers 14. There's a portion of that final chapter we're going we're to look at today. Uh, we learned, first of all, from Israel not to complain, not to grumble. I hope that you've learned that lesson and you're trying to apply it to your lives. Uh, we saw that first uh, in their complaining about the manna. Uh, that they were eating. They got the same stuff over and over again. They began complaining, and God heard that and punished them uh, accordingly. Uh, Then later on, Miriam and Aaron complain about Moses. And again, uh, hopefully by God's grace, we learn that God hears hears every word that we say, even when we complain. And so um, uh, we should learn a lot. Then uh, in Numbers 14, we went into the spy story. The spy story. We've taken two weeks to look at this. Uh, the first week, we, we looked at the role of the, the ten bad spies and how they contributed to the sins of Israel. They were the instigators. They brought back a bad report of the land, a wicked report. Sure, it was accurate in its detail. There were countries and nations and fortified cities. There was abundance of fruit, but it was wicked in that these spies had no faith in God. They didn't believe that God could do it. Then last week, we looked at the role of the people. The role that people played. We we saw in Numbers chapter 14, it starts with a great cry. They hear this report and and they cry, they weep all night long about it. But then that leads to them complaining and grumbling again about God's lack of provision. They wonder what God is doing. They think God is going to wipe them out uh, in this way. And so they complain. But probably one of my favorite parts of our story would be to see the way that Moses interceded for them. Remember, God says to Moses, why don't you, I'll I'll paraphrase here for a second, why don't you you get out of the way, I'm going to start over, I'm going to wipe them out and start over with the sons of Moses. And, but Moses would have none of it. And Moses intercedes for the people of Israel, and he does so by appealing to the great name of God. Look in your Bible at verse 15, just to remind you of this very important piece. It says, now if you kill this people as one man, this is Moses to God, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, it is because the Lord was not able, wasn't able to give them the land. And so we see that Moses has the audacity to go before God and to intercede before him. And he closes in verse 19 by saying, please pardon. Please pardon. And then verse 20, remember verse 20? God says, I have pardoned according to your word. I've pardoned according to your word. So we see Moses' great zeal to protect the glory of the name of God. Okay, I want you to keep that in mind because as we go through uh, the final part of this story Uh, here today, there's a very important subject that relates to that that I want us to see. 
It relates to the glory of God. It relates to our identity and our role in this world as followers of his. If our zeal will be like Moses, if it will be for the glory of God, then we must submit to his wills and decisions as they relate to us in our lives. In other words, you cannot have zeal for God's name and be unwilling to fulfill his plan and will for your life, whatever that may be. That's our lesson stated positively. Now to see it negatively in the narrative of Israel, I want to look with you at the end of the spy story. We're going to be looking at two scenes, scene three and four. We looked at the first two last week uh, as we go through this. The third scene starts in verse uh, 26. I call it the Yahweh speech scene. God will talk all throughout this scene. Look with me at verse 26. It says, And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I've heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in the wilderness, and of all your number listed in the census, from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. But your little ones who you said would become a prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and shall suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. According to the number of days in which you spied out the land, forty days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity forty years, and you shall know my displeasure." I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this I will do to all this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. Here we have the speech of Yahweh. In this speech, this response to Moses, Yahweh indicates two things. He indicates his determination to punish those who lack faith. The entire adult generation of the Israelite people, this first generation. But then we also see his commitment to preserve the nation of Israel through their children. Starts out in verse 27. You see the scene starts with God asking the question, how long? How long? Like, this is not a new question, though. If you look in your Bibles up before this in verse 11, God asks this question twice. Verse 11, and the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me and how long will they not believe in me? So in that text, God starts by asking Moses, uh, how long will they despise and not believe me? Now I think those two things are nearly synonymous. I think the way that they hated or despised God was by not believing in him. And so God asks, how long are they going to do this? But then he progresses in this verse, verse 27, how long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? So God complains about the Moses in in this sort of, uh, in his divine way, is they, uh, they do not, they are despising me, they're not believing in me, and they're grumbling. I I think there's a progression here that uh, 
Moses and that God is showing. The people did not believe God. And so that resulted in them grumbling about him and his character and his provision. One of the things I learned from comparing verse 11 and verse 27 is that failure to believe the right things about God is often at the heart of our complaining about what he is doing in our lives. Another way of saying that is our view of God, or a faulty view of God, leads to other sins. My wife Carissa has a better way of saying this. She says this often in, her, in, in our family. She uses uh, this one statement I've heard from her time and time again. She heard it when she was a teenager through preaching of the Word of God, and I think it stands true. The saying that she'll say in our family is, your view of God is the most important thing about you because it affects every area of your life. When you falter, it's because of one of two things. One of two things are true. Either, number one, there's something about your God that you do not know, or number two, there's something about your God that you are refusing to believe. If you want that full quote, see my wife sometime. She's got it memorized. The core of that quote is, if your view of God is off, if you don't know him properly, or if you're refusing to believe something about him, it will lead to a whole host of sins in our lives. The specific problem that the Israelites are demonstrating here is grumbling in verse 27. It's mentioned in some form or another four times in the next few verses. Look at verse 27 again. How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I've heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. What's this about? It's about grumbling. Look at verse 29. And your dead bodies shall fall in the wilderness, and all your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled. So later in verse 36 as well. This section is about the sin of complaining or grumbling. That's the specific thing that the Lord is addressing in his speech. And as we've already learned in the stories about the manna and about Miriam's disobedience, God holds his servants accountable for the words that they proclaim when they grumble and complain. Then going down to verses 29 and 30, we learn that God explains that he will do to the Israelites exactly what they said that, exactly what they said would happen. Earlier in the chapter, they say, you know, are we going to die in the wilderness? Are we going to die? It'd be better for us to, to die in Egypt. And now the Lord's saying, you know what? You're going to get exactly what you said. You are going to die in the wilderness. There's one thing that they've been saying, though, that's wrong and won't come true, and that's that their children would become victims. They said, we're going to die in the wilderness. These giants are going to kill us, and then they're going to, they're going to exploit our children, and they're going, to, they're going to victimize our children. And God says, now that is not going to happen. In God's goodness and grace, he protects their seed. He cares for their children, and he explains that uh, one day he will bring their children into the land, the promised land that they have forfeited. As a final note of judgment in uh, verses 32 through 35, uh, God pronounces something uh, very interesting. Look at verse 32. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. That's a very powerful statement. The word dead bodies is a word, it's the Hebrew word pegrikum, which is often used to describe human corpses that are scattered on the ground after something like a great battle. 
Think of a battle site, human corpses strewn across a battle site. The word fall is also a strong word. You could translate it, I saw a few English translations translated as drop. Your, your bodies will lose all animation and they will drop. They will fall in this wilderness. This is a difficult sentence in judgment on the people of Israel, but we need to remember it is a consequence of their lack of faith in God the Father. And we must understand that it is entirely at God's disposal to send both blessing and judgment upon his children. He is, after all, the holy creator God. He can do as he sees fit. And so here, the sentence is harsh, although even in that, I think we see some grace. Before we go to the final scene of the story, in verses 36 through 38, there's what I would call a narrator's comment. Now, the narrator's Moses, okay? I think it's Moses, but he gives this comment that sticks out a bit in the story, and it's about what happens to the ten bad spies. Look in your Bible at this narrator's comment in verse 36. It says, And the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land, who returned and made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing a bad report about the land, the men who brought up a bad report of the land died by plague before the Lord. Of those men who went to spy out the land, only Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh remained alive. I want to make two observations about Moses' comments here about these spies. First, we should remember the role the spies played in the disobedience of the people. I think that the spies face or meet a more severe punishment because they were the catalysts, they were the ones, the instigators who brought back the first bad report. I want you also to see that the extinction that they face is the first of hundreds of thousands of people who will die in the wilderness. Okay, and so the point I make here is they're getting immediately what the rest of the adults will get eventually. That is death as a consequence for their sin. But there is something unique about it, right? And that is the unique nature of their death. Okay? These spies don't die of old age. Okay? They die of a distinct plague. We don't know what plague it is. Okay? We don't know what plague God had at his arsenal to, that he would use to target just these 10 individuals. Okay? We don't know if other people dying, these 10 individuals die. So although we don't know the exact nature of the plague, we do get its point. Its, its precision is very powerful. I'm sure it would be a powerful testimony to the children of Israel. By just taking out the ten spies, I'm sure this would be a very strong word about the power of God and how he holds people accountable. Well, we might show some caution here. I think it seems to me that what we learn here is that God normally reserves 
the hardest judgment for his children who lead others into sin. I think as well you can see that like in the Miriam story and how she gets leprosy and others do not. God often reserves the hardest judgment for his children who lead others into sin. And I I think this characteristic of God is often even woven into human government. That's not always the case, but I think often this quality or attribute of God is placed into government structures when they decide to give this most severe form of judgment to the primary instigator. Okay, maybe has some helpers in the crime, and they're all culpable, right? They're all going to face judgment, but, but many times, even in human government, the most severe punishment is for the main instigator. And that, that's what I find here in this story with these ten spies in his comment. So having considered the fate of these ten bad spies and the narrator's comments here, we are prepared to look at the last scene, verses 39 through 45. I call this scene the rebellion Look with me at verse 39. It says, When Moses told these words to all the people of Israel, the people mourned greatly. And they rose early in the morning and went up to the heights of the hill country, saying, Here we are. We will go up to the place that the Lord has promised, for we have sinned. But Moses said, Why now are you transgressing the command of the Lord when that will not succeed? Do not go up, for the Lord is not among you lest you be struck down before your enemies. For the Amalekites and the Canaanites are facing you, and you shall fall by the sword. Because you've turned back from following the Lord, the Lord will not be with you. But they presumed to go up to the heights of the hill country, although neither the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed out of the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites, who lived in that hill country, came down and defeated them and pursued them even to Hormah. Now, when we start in this final scene, verse 39, it, it sounds promising at the beginning, right? It says, when Moses told these words to all the people, the people mourned greatly. Moses informs them, at least a great mourning. Uh, but we've seen this before, these people. If you look at the very first verse of chapter 14, a verse I referred to at the beginning of the sermon, it says, then all the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night. I described to you the fact that the people mourned greatly when they first received the spy story, and they mourned all night long, and then they woke up the next morning only to complain about what God was doing. Here in verse 39, they, they, they get the report from Moses, right? They get the report that they're not to go in the promised land, that they're going to die in the wilderness, and that they need to turn back toward Egypt. They need to, they'll be wandering around in the wilderness for some time. And we learn they mourn greatly again. Now, it's important to realize this is not the type of mourning that Paul talks about in the New Testament. A mourning that leads to repentance. Repentance. They do change course, but uh, I liked how one commentator described it this week. He said, but it's too little too late. He said this is a classic example of too little too late. Instead of obeying God and submitting to the punishment that will come from his hand, they insist again on doing things their own way. More specifically, the text of Scripture says they refuse to obey the command of God. You should pause and think, what command is he talking about here? I think it's verse 25. 
verse 25 says, uh, Now since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by way to the Red Sea. That's what God in his speech to Moses told him to do. Turn and head back toward the Red Sea. Now the people who've heard that defy the Lord and refuse to listen to this command. One scholar said it, their actions are rash and foolish and measured and deliberate. They're going to disobey the clear command of God again. So Moses makes it clear what's going to happen to them. If you go up into the promised land, he explains that the Lord will not be with them and that the Canaanites, their enemies, and Malachites will strike them down. But again, they, they cast off Moses' counsel and his words and they insist on their own way and they Even the text uses a very strong word. It says that they presume to go up into the hill country, into the land they were not supposed to go. The word presume is a powerful word, Hebrew word. uh, The word means they had the audacity to do something outrageous. Like how the Septuagint translates this word, it uses a word that means they... They were forcing their own way, forcing their own way here to make something happen. The truth of the matter is that the unwillingness and the disobedience and the hard-hearted disregard of God were all unchanged. They were still insisting on their own things. And so they go up without Moses, without the Ark of the Covenant, which represents the presence of God, and they are defeated and pursued by their enemies the whole way to a place called Horma, which uh, speaks of that, that uh, name means destruction. Destruction. So we went through this story and considered it. I, I'd say, you know, what another sad story. Here at the end, the people have yet another opportunity to submit to God and to glorify his name. Although now they're under God's hand of punishment, I think there'd still be ways that they, they could glorify God in their human existence in the wilderness. There were still ways uh, that God was providing for them and giving them grace throughout the wilderness. They still had opportunities to invest in and train their children for what their future would have. They could teach many lessons throughout those 40 years of their own failure to submit to and to remember that God has the power and the ability to do what, what he wants. I mean, I mean, this is a hard situation. It is a death sentence, but it is mitigated. There's still more that they can do throughout their life, yet they fail at this opportunity again to submit to the sovereign hand of God. The great Presbyterian preacher Clarence McCartney uh, was a preacher of uh, the early 1900s into 1930s. He once told of a conversation that he had with a famous Presbyterian layman. The layman was also also a nationally famous orator, three-time presidential candidate, and was the Secretary of State. His name was William Jennings Bryan. McCartney was once with Brian in a car after Brian had delivered his now famous speech, the cross of gold speech that thrust Brian into the national limelight. 
McCartney said to him, Mr. Brian, I suppose that many times before you have made just as able of a speech as that one, yet no one ever heard it. Mr. Brian said, yes, I suppose that is true, but this convention was my opportunity. I had the opportunity, and I made the most of it. After some silence in the car, his next phrase was this. He said, and that's all that we ever do in life. Use or lose opportunities. Thinking of all of these stories with the Israelite people, I think that phrase, use or lose opportunities, is true of every follower of Jesus Christ. Every week, every day, God gives us opportunities to move forward in faith under his goodness and sovereign plan for our lives. Let's not force our own way, but to submit to God's plans for us, to learn from the Israelite people. A few applications I considered this week. I want to ask you two questions as you consider learning from Israel here. First, how can you live for the fame of God's name in your occupation? For some people, it might involve changing your occupation. For me, it did. I was going to be an accountant or business manager. I love math to this day. I had turned in all the paperwork. That's what I was going to pursue, some sort of degree where I could, you know, count money or process money, uh, something like that, something to do with numbers. But with my gifts and what God was working and doing in my heart, as an 18-year-old man, I felt that he wanted me to switch that. I felt that he wanted me to be a preacher. So I changed everything. It was an easy decision, but it brought a lifetime of implications and differences. For some of you, maybe it means changing your occupation, but for most of you, it might mean changing the way you work. You arrange things perhaps so that you look better or that others appreciate your performance. But this is a question I have for you. Is there some better way to use your opportunities at work for the fame of God's name? Think about your work environment. Maybe you've never seen a believer. Model this in your workplace. I would encourage you to pray and imagine what God could do with you over the course of the next many years if you would live for the fame of God's name. Maybe it's school for you. How can you live for God's glory there? Again, maybe you're not aware of other students who use school and relationships in school for the glory, the fame of God's name. I, I want to push back on that and I want to ask you, you know, may, or tell you, maybe it's a, maybe it's a Bible study. Maybe it's prayer. Maybe it's discipleship with one other person in your school. How can you use your occupation to further the glory of God's name? Second question of application I ask is this. Are there any of your own personal ambitions that do not center on the fame of God's name? Are there any of your own personal ambitions that do not center on the fame of God's name. Perhaps there are some moments, private moments of time wasting, 
things you like to do, but things that have very little eternal impact. Say, if you cannot draw a straight line from your personal ambition to the glory of God's name, I would suggest perhaps you should replace that pursuit, that thing. You go and learn from the children of Israel. I'm struck more by the response of Moses. He was concerned for the glory of God's name among the nations. I want to learn from the failure of Israelites. And so will you pray with me that God would give us strong faith to face our life opportunities in such a way that we give glory to God in how we live. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for Numbers 14. I thank you for your word. It is what we need. Lord, we've looked at a text this, this morning of 21 verses, 20 verses. Lord, about the sins of the Israelite people thousands of years ago. They failed repeatedly. They did not believe you. They displeased you. They despised your name. And they grumbled. Father, as we get to this text that we've looked at today, they also presumed to continue to do their own thing even after hearing your will and plan for them. I pray that we would not insist on our own things, but that we would live for the fame of your name. Lord, help it to be our consideration. Help it to to factor into the way that we would uh, work in our workplace or live at home or interact with brothers and sisters in the Lord or with our neighbors. Help us to think about how your name could grow in those relationships. And Lord, may we be willing to submit to your will, regardless of whether it means blessing or leanness. Regardless of whether it means physical health or disease and death. Lord, if we truly, truly have zeal for your name, then we would submit to whatever your hand gives us. Lord, help my brothers and sisters in Christ, especially those going through physical trial, to know that at least at this point in their life, this is your plan for them. I pray that their zeal would be for your name's sake, for the fame of your name in their life. We pray that this would be true of all of us. In Jesus' name, amen.